0: If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. As we turn to God's Word, let's go to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may Your Word be our rule May your Holy Spirit be our teacher and may your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We've reached week number 31 in our series, Jesus According to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, after today, we're going to be taking a break for about a month uh, from Mark. Um, I'm not going to be here Uh, Next Sunday, uh, Jonathan Davis, the campus minister for Reformed University Fellowship um, at the University of Kentucky will be with us, and he's going to be bringing a message from Psalm 1, so we're going to do a short series in August on uh, the summer psalms, as it were, and we'll pick back up uh, with Mark in, um, in September. Now... We have a post office box for the church right across the street at the Florence Post Office. And I check the mail there several times a week. And without fail, almost every time I open the box is unsolicited mail. Marketing mail. How to grow the church. How to sell the church. How to make the church relevant to this world. Advertising, promotions, and offers. I mean, I'm pretty sure it says Grace and Peace Presbyterian Church, not Grace and Peace Company or Grace and Peace Corporation or Grace and Peace Business, but you would never know that by the mail we get. Now, here's a question. Should the church be different than a business? Is the church different than a business? Well, some of those advertisements that I get are... are, are telling us to buy books along these lines. Your best life now. Become a better you. It's your time. Wow. Sounds like the world. So here's another question. Should the church be different than the world? Here's another question. Is the church different from the world? Those questions are going to be addressed today in our text. Where are we in Mark? We're in the pivotal chapter. And I say that literally it's the pivot point. Up till now, we've been seeing Jesus talk about who he is. And from here on out, as we discovered the week before last, he is is talking about what he came to do. And in fact, those are the first two questions of our shorter, excuse me, shortest catechism of Mark. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? The first half of Mark is, who is Jesus? And the answer we found from the lips of Peter in chapter 8, verse 29 was, you are the Christ. It's the turning point of Mark. And the second half is answering the question, what did Jesus come to do? He came to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise again as we saw last week. Last week, following his confession, Peter rebuked Jesus with the best of intentions. But then we saw Jesus rebuke Peter, issuing a shocking command, Get behind me, Satan. Well, this week, Jesus adds yet another shock. He begins to explain the implications of his identity for those who would follow him. Because you see, a wrong view of the Messiah that Peter and the others had leads to a wrong view of what it means to follow that Messiah, to a a wrong view of, in other words, discipleship. Now, going back to sales and marketing and business, Ask yourself this, how does Jesus sell and market Himself? His mission. Now I want you to think about this as we will see. Jesus is utterly and completely upfront and honest about His and His disciples' mission. Unlike an unethical salesman or a military recruiter, there's no bait and switch. They don't get you in the door with one thing and then, lo and behold, provide another thing. And unlike the mutual funds that many investment advisors sell, Jesus only sells front-loaded mutual funds. What's it going to take? What's it going to take? We're going to see that. Uh, Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of Great Britain during the Second World War, when was asked what it was going to take, he said these memorable words, I have nothing to offer but blood, sweat, tears, and sweat. And we will see Jesus actually going further, offering himself, his blood, his life. Last week, it was the necessity of the cross for Jesus. This week, it's the necessity of the cross for us. Join with me now as I read verses 34, chapter 8, verse 34 through 9, 1. But actually, let me stop. start at verse 31 as a review. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father With the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, in our text, Jesus presents a demanding call, a spiritual equation, and a sober warning. Let's take a look at the demanding call. Verse 34 Come after me. In other words, follow me, Jesus says. It's not the first time Jesus had already called men to follow him. We remember the calling of Peter in chapter 1 and Andrew and the calling of Levi in chapter 2. Notice, Jesus is addressing this to both the crowds and his disciples. The crowds who see Jesus as a miracle worker and his disciples who pretty much see Jesus as the political leader. The one who's going to restore Israel, who's going to throw off the yoke of the Romans. That's the Messiah they had in mind. The call, once again, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would come with me, follow. Follow. Do you like to lead or follow? Children, what is a great game that all of you know how to play? Fill in the blanks. Follow the leader. Follow the leader. But I want you to think for a moment about following. Consider what it means to follow. When you're following, you don't get to choose where you're going. Anybody ever thought about that? When you're following, you don't determine the speed at which you're following. It may be fast, it may be slow. When you're following, if you lose sight of who you're following, guess what? You're no longer following. If in following you get ahead of who you're following, you're no longer following. Jesus here in these next verses is going to unpack what it means to follow by presenting two conditions of which John Calvin noted as the sum of the Christian life. The denial of ourselves and bearing the cross. So here's the first condition for those that come after Jesus, who follow him. First condition, self-denial. Let him deny himself. It's not the denial of things like no chocolate during Lent or some sort of asceticism or self-discipline. This denying yourself is far more radical. And what do we mean when we use the word radical? To the root. To the core. Not something just, as it were, on the outside, invisible, but all the way to the root, to the core. Not the denial of something, but guess what? The denial of someone. Primarily you, yourself. But self-denial is not self-hatred. Self-hatred is really just another form of self-centeredness. You are absorbed in your own problems, and your attention and focus are dominated by your flaws and failures. Self-denial, rather, is self-forgetfulness. The center of gravity shifts. It's no longer you. It's another. Self-denial, in the context of the Gospel, is the renunciation of all hope of eternal life based upon good works, human righteousness, and human goodness. So the first condition is self-denial, deny himself. But the second condition is cross-bearing. We read, and take up his cross. It's important to pause right now and absorb how the original hearers The crowd and the disciples would have understood Jesus. Jesus has just spoken of His coming physical death. The reference to the cross would therefore have been understood only as an invitation to come suffer, be rejected, and to die with Him. I think it's important to not rush too quickly to spiritual applications here. Because indeed, it is right to talk about the cross we must bear to be sure the trials and the temptations and the difficulties and the suffering. But at this point, the cross during the time of the Roman occupation would have meant only one thing. Not difficulty, not trials, not hardships, not being sinned against it would mean one thing, death. Death for the most hardened criminals and revolutionaries committing treason. We're all used to this idea and image of the cross. It almost has a beauty to it today, and indeed, seeing correctly, there is a beauty of the cross. But we need to, once again, see how repugnant The cross would have been at the day it was the symbol of the hated Roman occupation, a form of death so cruel, so dehumanizing, so shameful that even the most evil regimes in human history have not employed crucifixion as a means of executing criminals, as a policy as it were of the government. It was the preeminent means of Rome's terror apparatus and for the Jew, What would death on the cross mean? A curse. To liken the following of Christ to bearing a cross was as powerful a way as it could be imagined to say that a man or woman had to be willing to sacrifice everything and endure anything. Take up your cross. As a metaphor, as a picture, as an image, it's along the lines of deny self lose life. It's to show the principle of self-will and self-determination will do this. It will die a slow death. Because those of you that are familiar with the account of Jesus' crucifixion know it wasn't like a hanging. It wasn't like a firing squad. It wasn't a lethal injection. It wasn't an uh, electric chair. It was a slow and agonizing, painful death. And how does Jesus conclude? Take up his cross and follow me. Follow me with self-denial and cross-bearing. And when those two are embraced, the two major obstacles to following Jesus are removed. Because following Jesus means conformity to Jesus in his life and in his death. Now I want to ask... I didn't. When we preach through a book, you get to passages that you wish you could skip. And my friends, this is a difficult passage. It's right at the center of Mark. It's talking about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus following Him, as it were, to His death and your death. Let me ask you this. Uh, There are a lot of good definitions for what a Christian is out there. A lot of accurate, biblically-based definitions. But let me ask you this. When it comes to being a Christian, following Jesus, how often do you think about self-denial and cross-bearing? Again... Jesus is totally upfront. He doesn't bait and switch. Oh, by the way, after this really happy, joyful ride to Jerusalem, uh, I'm going to die. He's upfront. Ask yourself, in your understanding of what it means to be a Christian, do the words self denial, do, does cross bearing come into play? So we see that Jesus issues a demanding call, a radical, to-the-root call. We will now see that he will explain why someone should follow him by presenting a spiritual equation. A spiritual equation we see in verses 35-37. through And the next three verses are striking in their vivid rhetorical form. Listen again. For whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? And the first clause is negative, something Jesus wants to discourage. Save his life sounds good, doesn't it? But Jesus is saying, no, that's actually negative. Jesus wants to discourage people from from saving their lives. But the positive second clause is something Jesus wants to encourage. But whoever loses his life, Jesus is encouraging the loss of life. Save his life. How would people understand to save your life? It would mean at this time to try to save yourself by doing good works or to try to become happy through living out of self-interest. Thus, there is a religious way to save your life and an irreligious way to save your life. Either good works to get right with God on the one hand, or I don't care, I'm going to be my own Lord. On the one hand, I'm going to try to be my own Savior. On the other hand, I'm going to try to be my own Lord. Saving life. But there's a second clause, again, loses his life. What does that mean? To give up claims of self-determination, to submit, to give up your claims of righteousness. In other words, to repent, to be willing to do anything, to relinquish, even to die. And this, of course, is parallel to denying self and taking up cross. Jesus is wanting to say, in other words, you will never find out who you are By saying save your life until you find out who I am losing your life on my account. Notice it's a little, it slips in there without much attention, but look at it again. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The person of Jesus and the message of Jesus. My friends, you cannot separate Oh, I like Jesus, but I really don't like everything he said. You cannot separate the two. And our world around us does a great job in trying to distinguish and separate the man from his message. You can't have one without the other. And notice in verse 35, we're now in the language of commerce. Profit and gain versus forfeit. He's reinforcing what he's just said in verse 35. Gain the whole world is parallel to save his life. And what was Satan's temptation to Jesus in the wilderness? To gain the whole world. It can be all yours. Forfeit his soul. In this case, really parallel to our first understanding of losing your life. Imagine with me a scale. Children, are y'all familiar with a balance or a scale? Imagine with me the whole world on one side with all the trappings, the pleasures, the treasures all piled up on one side, and then on the other side, your life, your soul. That's the image that's being fostered in this great exchange, this profit-loss picture. And there's a rhetorical question here. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What profit? For those of you that are good at profit and loss statements, what profit? It's not said, it's a rhetorical question. No profit. It doesn't profit. But there's followed by another question, verse thirty-seven. For what can a man give in return for his life? It's no longer the ransom of commerce. It's, it's, it's excuse me, the language. It's the language of ransom. What can a man give? Both questions, notice, are left unanswered because they're so obvious. Somebody is kidnapped. There's a hostage. There's blackmail. What will people do? They will pay. They will pay whatever it takes to get their life back, their loved ones back, their business back if ransomware takes over their IT system. Two rhetorical questions. The answers are obvious, and Jesus is wanting people to think and consider the world and what it offers or what he's offering. After Jesus issues a demanding call, he presents a spiritual equation that goes something like this. We cannot be saved unless we are willing to lose our own record and will and instead rely on Jesus' record and will. And now we will see Jesus issue a sober warning. A sober warning in verse 38. Yes, my friends, Jesus does issue warnings. Jesus forgives. Jesus heals, as we've seen in Mark. Jesus feeds. And Jesus warns. We receive the whole Jesus, not a um, compartmentalized Jesus. Jesus warns. And what is the warning? If you are ashamed of me and my words now, I will be ashamed of you then. Now, this adulterous and sinful generation. My friends, that is every generation. First century, 21st century. Then, now and then. What is the then? It's the return of Jesus in glory. When the Son of Man appears in glory as we saw in Daniel 7. Ashamed. Now, there's a lot of things we could say about what does it mean to be ashamed, but we've got to look at the context. What is it dealing with? It's bypassing the way of the cross in favor of the things of man. In other words, Peter was ashamed of the cross. He didn't want Jesus to go the way of the cross. It's not so much internal emotions, but rather external emotions actions of denying being ashamed to deny instead of as it were confess and notice once again me and my words the person of jesus and the words of jesus cannot be separated ashamed of me and my words Jesus claims divine authority here in final judgment. He's not only honest, but Jesus, as you notice in making these statements, is utterly confident. No doubt about it. No hesitation. And notice, he's speaking plainly. Even though we don't need Mark's editorial comment to say plainly speaking, Jesus is still plainly speaking. But something else is here by implication and it's an amazing promise. It's a glorious promise. It's unspoken. And what is that promise? Therefore, whoever is not ashamed of me now, I will not be ashamed of then. It's there by implication. And after speaking of pro- and speaking of promises, here we find another great promise and it's in that mysterious And hard to understand verse 1 of chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There are various interpretations of this verse, and so therefore we have to be modest in our interpretation. There are several layers of fulfillment the resurrection, Jesus comes in glory. The ascension, He ascends in glory. At Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, it's a glorious moment. At the second coming of Jesus, the final advent, it will be a glorious moment. The disciples have to be confused and uncertain. They are reeling from a double shock. Jesus' death and who else's death? Their death. But step back away with me for a moment from this puzzle and see the pastoral comfort that Jesus as the Good Shepherd provides. The promise of verse 1 will be followed by the experience of verses 2 through 8, the transfiguration, where for a moment, one shining moment, Jesus will display and declare His glory. Jesus issues a demanding call. He lays out a spiritual equation and he gives a sober warning we see in our text. Well, let's go back to this. Who is Mark's original audience? Who would be reading this for the first time? Who is Mark writing for? Christians most likely in Rome. Facing the prospect of suffering for following Jesus. And so here is the question Mark is asking them. Are you dying to yourself and living for Jesus? In other words, are you dying to live? They needed that kind of teaching. That kind of comfort. That kind of truth. And who else is Mark writing to? Us, Right here, right now. Unless you've been living on an isolated island by yourself. If you're living here in America in particular. There is more and more pressure out there to be ashamed of Jesus and the gospel. There is more and more pressure and more and more temptations to conform to the world and to compromise the truth. My friends, whether you are in Rome in the first century or in northern Kentucky, greater Cincinnati in the 21st century, there is pressure to be ashamed of Jesus. Because these words of Jesus are not easy. They are not meant to be. They are difficult. They are demanding. They are shocking. But you know what? They demand a response. Chapter 8, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. But there's also the question, who am I? Paul would write to the church later in Galatia these words, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now it's important to remember that self-denial and cross-bearing are not works we perform in order to become Christians. Otherwise, salvation is by works and not by grace. No, these are not works done in order to earn salvation, but rather works that are done that display salvation. If you haven't figured it out right by now, Jesus is not so much concerned about how to have your best life now, here in this world, with all that the world has to offer. Rather, he is concerned about how to have your best life for all eternity in a right and restored relationship with your Creator. And my friends, gathering on the Lord's Day week after week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, is a means of grace for God's people to be reminded of what is true and what is false and what will go on for eternity and what will not. My friends, we have got to see the need to be with one another in the company of one another with God's Word and Spirit present to continue the great work of changing us more and more into the image of Jesus. Well, let's wrap up with a final question. Are you dying to live? Are you dying to yourself yet living for Jesus? Are you giving what you can't keep anyway to gain something that you know you'll never lose? Are you trading in the temporary for the eternal? Some of you may know the name Jim Elliott who in 1949, wrote in his journal these words, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Seven years later, on a river bank in Ecuador, he along with three other missionaries were killed, speared to death, as they were witnessing and and not being ashamed of Jesus and the Gospel. Finally, two words of encouragement in the midst of this demand and this sober word of Jesus. First, remember, always remember, Jesus practices what he preaches. Jesus called his disciples and he is leading from the front. The Christian life is follow the leader, but it's not a game. It's the way of life for a Christian. We follow our leader. And for what he calls his followers to do, Jesus himself has done. A Christian is expected to deny himself no matter what the sacrifice. But it takes enormous strength to follow Jesus. Jesus is in particular his way of weakness. So where do we get the strength to be as weak as Jesus is weak. That strength comes from knowing that Jesus walked in this way before us and knowing that the weight we bear is nothing like the weight He bore for us. All our sin on Him was laid. And second and finally, Not only does Jesus practice what He preaches, He gives what He demands. Jesus demands your life, He demands my life, and He gives us His life. Because Paul would continue to write this, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Indeed, Paul would also write this, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. My friends, two life-changing questions are asked in chapter 8. One is asked by Jesus, Who do you say that I am? And the other is asked and must be answered by each of us. Who am I? Who am I? Am I someone who's denying myself, taking up my cross, and following Jesus? Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that these are hard words. These are difficult words, but we also acknowledge they are true words. And Your Word, Father, is life to your people. So Father, would you be pleased to take what is written and what was spoken and drive it into our hearts, to the root, so that all of us individually as families and as a church would know that there is no better place on earth than the road that leads to heaven. And the road that leads to heaven is a road where we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow Jesus. And Father, we follow Jesus, as it were, to the death. But we also know Jesus said that on the third day he would rise. And he did. Father, help us to see that suffering comes before glory, the cross before the crown. Help us to run the race with perseverance, with joy, fixing our eyes upon the one we are following. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.